Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Look there, it's uh, chapter one, and... um the thing about John is uh, there are more personal encounters there than there are in any of the other Gospels. We have uh, in the other Gospels Jesus addressing uh, the crowds. We do have some personal conversations, but it seems that the highlight in the book of John is with personal encounters. Can anybody think of any one-on-one conversations in the book of John? Just off the top of your head. Nicodemus, what chapter is that? Chapter 3. All right. Anybody else? Zacchaeus, I think, is in Luke, if I'm not mistaken, Luke 19 or 15, one of those two. I think it's 19. Anybody else want to take a guess? John 9 is the healing of the blind man. Yeah, there's an encounter there. What about chapter 4? Anybody think of anything in chapter 4? Kind of a famous one. The Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, right? Okay. Um, Trying to think of some other in-depth encounters. There's quite a few of them in the book of John. I think there's, I counted uh, 15 encounters with individuals that are a little bit lengthy in the book of John. And so uh, we have, of course, the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus and his daughter. That's all in John. Um we have a long conversation with Peter there at the the end. Anybody remember that one? Peter, do you, what? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Then feed my lambs. Uh, so we have a lot of these encounters with uh, individuals and Jesus in the book of John. Encountering Jesus, uh, it means more many times than people want uh, from an encounter with God. I think sometimes what people are after, and maybe I've gotten a little bit jaded, but uh, I think sometimes what people are after is a, an emotional encounter. They want an emotional encounter with God. And I don't think that that is excluded from these. I think these were probably, many of them, very emotional in the encounter. But uh, some want to just stop there. They want to have a, a spiritual feel, uh, feeling. But uh, these conversations reveal something about Jesus. They usually reveal something about the individual that is talking to Jesus. And they call for uh, belief in him, the kind of belief that uh, leads to commitment. So when we read belief in the book of John, this isn't some kind of mental agreement with facts, okay? That's, only, that's like the kindergarten of belief. When you say, I believe that, that's kindergarten. Anybody go to kindergarten? Okay, so what are you learning in kindergarten? You didn't go to kindergarten, Miss George? I think you should go to kindergarten just to see what it's like. It wasn't around her. My mom went to kindergarten. My dad never did. They said they didn't, just went to first grade in his day. They were only a year apart, but somehow one got it, the other didn't. But uh, that's the very beginnings of faith is just to agree with some facts. It, it goes beyond that to a commitment. So when John talks about belief, he's talking about a call 
to commitment. When we read belief, we should read commitment because that's what belief in John is talking about. And so the interesting thing about John is that he doesn't ever use belief as a noun. You'll never hear in the book of John him talk about belief. It's always a verb. You're believing or having believed, past tense, um, uh, or believes, or believe, the, the perfect tense, right? That this is what we're called to do. So uh, belief in, in the book of John or the gospel of John is an action that, uh, that we are partaking of. And, and certainly we understand that God grants us and he gives us ability to believe. He helps us to believe but it's something that the believer must do. So belief is the usual theme uh, of the book of John and the theme of these conversations, usually. Okay, so I want you to think about what is the purpose of the book of John? Anybody know what the purpose of the book of John is? It's stated for us pretty clearly near the end of the book. I'll help you out. These things are written so that what? We might believe, and in believing, what? Have life in his name, okay? So these things are written that we might believe. We'll come to that verse in just a moment. But this is what uh, the book of John is really all about. For some reason, my Bible is open to Luke. And so let me flip over here really quickly to John chapter 1 and what it means to encounter Jesus here. In John chapter 1. Let's read verses 43. We'll read through verse 51. It says here, um, sorry, verse. let's go from verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon, and to tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John, uh, who will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, Nazareth, that's exclamation point, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite to whom there is no, in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we have a personal encounter here with Jesus where uh, Jesus is beginning to gather his disciples and each of them come a little bit differently, but he invites them to to come and to follow. And in this particular case, it's another disciple that says, you know, we found him. And so I'd like you to notice this first section here 
This is in verses 43 through 46, is about finding Jesus. So let's go through here and just take a look at um, where we might find the word, we might find the word found, okay? So start at verse 43, okay? The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and uh, it says there, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me, finding. Who's doing the action here? Jesus, right? Jesus found Philip. Do you see that? He found Philip. So I'd like you to notice uh, verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And then verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. Do you see that? Again, there's a verb. The verb is found this time. Philip is finding Nathanael, bringing him along. Then I'd like you to keep following here. And he said he found Nathanael, and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph. So we have Jesus finding Philip, and Philip finding Nathanael. And Philip saying to Nathanael, we have found the one of whom it's written about in Moses and the prophets. Uh, anybody uh, familiar with any time Jesus says Moses and the prophets, he's referring to something. What's he referring to? Yeah, yes, prophecy. What's that, Jeremy? The Pentateuch. Okay. I think uh, when we hear about, uh, anybody heard about what they call the Old Testament, the, the Jewish name for the Old Testament? It's Tanakh. Okay. So they have three letters. And then they fill in with vowels, but T and K. And those letters refer to law, prophets, and writings. So anytime Jesus says the law and the prophets, it's kind of a, a shorthand way of saying uh, the Old Testament. Okay, So can you keep that in mind as Jesus says this, uh, or Philip says this, we found the one who Moses has written about and the prophets. The law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And, of course, that would include the writings, too. He's talking about the Old Testament witness pointing to Jesus. We found him. And, of course, a question comes, and that question is really important uh, tonight. He says, Nathaniel uh, kind of gets hung up on something. What's, he, what's the question that he asks? Nazareth, <laughs> right? A statement, can, and then the question that follows, can anything good come from there? Tonight, this is a, a Bible study we want to look at. Why, why, is, this, why is this said, and uh, why does he ask these kinds of questions? So this is a hang-up for Nathaniel, and it's a hang-up for others that uh, Jesus should come from, and I want to put come from in quotes, Nazareth. Okay, he comes from Nazareth, um, but we know that he doesn't really. He didn't originate from Nazareth, and that's not his ancestral lineage. Is from Nazareth. Are you with me on that? Where's he from? What's his ancestral lineage? Bethlehem, the town of David. David. So that's really important because, in some ways, where Jesus is from obscures a little bit who he really is. Okay. Have you ever been surprised um, at something that maybe comes in a small or a, uh, maybe a different kind of packaging or it comes from a small place and then 
you're kind of astounded like it's more than you thought it would be on first appearance. Anybody relate to that a little bit? Like they always say, don't judge a book by its cover. I'm always judging books by their covers, literal books by their covers. That one looks good, and if there's equal books, the same title, and one of them looks nicer than the other one, I'm going to buy the one that looks better. But in this particular case, uh, we find out Jesus is much more than he appears to be. And this is part of John's evidence. The whole, the whole gospel is accumulating evidence that shows Jesus is trustworthy and that we ought to put our faith in him. But here Nathaniel's hung up on this detail about where Jesus is from. And this isn't a problem just for Nathaniel. Now, he's isolating it to Nazareth because Nathaniel is from uh, the same region. He's from Galilee. Okay, But you know how you can look down upon a region, and even people within that region can look down a particular portion of that region? That's what's happening here. It's like people from Jerusalem would look down on all of Galilee. People from Galilee would maybe say, well, we're from the city part of Galilee. We're not from little Nazareth. And so there's this special snobbery that's kind of happening here that we should be aware of. They're looking down upon Jesus being from Nazareth, this little farming community right on the edge of the Valley of Jezreel. Um, Can anything good come from there? So this isn't a problem just for Nathaniel, but for others uh, as well. When Jesus stood up in chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles and he declares himself to be the source of living water. Do you remember that? If anybody's thirsty, let them come and, and drink from the water that I will give. And so when he did that, people started to dispute, is this the Messiah? And then some people countered that with, no, he can't be because he's from Galilee. He can't be because he's from Galilee. That's in uh, John chapter 7, verse 41, 42 and then also verse 52. This is the dispute. Even uh, in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is there again, and they want to begin to press charges against Jesus. And Nicodemus comes to his defense a little bit and says, we never try, we never accuse anybody without a trial. And then they turn on Nicodemus. He's one of their own members. And they said, are you from Galilee too? Are you from Galilee too? So this is a real problem, this kind of snobbery that is happening towards Jesus. So is this justified? I, I know we know we're devoted to we're devoted followers of Jesus. I hope we're all devoted followers of Jesus here. And so we understand this isn't justified, but um, how can they feel this way towards Jesus? Let's uh, remember tonight one of our favorite Christmas passages. Is it okay? to talk about Christmas passages when we're in May. Are you okay with that? I mean, we're, we're clean away from the snow. We're safe. It's not going to snow tonight, so we can talk a little bit about this. Our favorite Christmas passage, one of them, Isaiah 9, verses 1 and following. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Listen, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
That's verses 1 and 2. If you jump down to verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And what puzzles me a little bit about this is why somebody didn't come to Jesus's defense, not that he needs that, but why somebody didn't say, hey, guys, remember the book of Isaiah talks about Jesus, talks about the Messiah shining his light upon Galilee of the nations. And if you know a little bit of the history, you know that the first ones to go into exile were the regions of Galilee. They're the first ones that saw the Assyrians come in and take captives and go away, and they saw their national identity begin to fade. And so Isaiah says, not long after that or right around that time, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to shine his light upon Galilee. And so here, I think there's, there's evidence from the Old Testament that it's not only that Jesus is there, but that Scripture said he would be there. And so Nathaniel's question, can anything good come from Galilee? And the other's question, can anything like this, can a Messiah dwell in Nazareth, that remote sticks region of Israel? Can anybody of prominence be from there? And of course, it's, it's shown uh, that Jesus is who he said he was and the, the Son of God uh, who is glorious walked in places that were not so glorious. And I think that's fabulous. So what's the response that Philip gives to Nathaniel? What does he say here? Look there with me at uh, verse... Sorry, verse 46. Nope. Yep, verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see. Come and see. I think this is an interesting thing to say because see is a really important word in this passage and also throughout the book of John. You look it up and you see the, that the invitation of the Gospel of John often is to see. It's an invitation to Jesus' disciples. Uh, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and couple of John's disciples start to follow after Jesus, and they say, where, have you, where do you lay your head? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, come and see. Come and see. And he invites them into a, a spiritual conversation in which they no longer follow John anymore. They begin to follow him. We think that's probably uh, Andrew, and um, it could be John. John and Andrew were the ones that followed after him. So this, this is an important invitation here in verse 46 from Philip to Nathaniel. Hey, we think we found him about whom the Old Testament is referring. And even if you don't understand how he could come from Galilee, come and see. Come and see. Okay, and then we have the invitation of the woman at the well after she goes back to her people, right? Come and see somebody who told me everything I ever did. Come and see. Come and see. The invitation is to come and see. And then at the end of the gospel, we have kind of a uh, remarkably parallel passage to the Nathaniel story 
And we'll talk about that a little more when we get there. But in chapter 20, verse 25, after Jesus rises, Thomas says this thing like, I will not believe unless I see for myself. Remember that? And Jesus comes into the room, and what does he say? Come. And he says, see my hands. See my hands. So it's an invitation to come and see. Here in this passage, uh, see is a very important word. This, remember we said found is an important word in verses 43 through 46. But verse uh, 46 through 51, see is a really important word. If you'll just follow with me through these verses. Look at verse 46 there. It says in verse 46, come and see. Verse 47 uh, sorry, verse 46, uh, verse, verse 47 says, and Jesus saw Nathanael, same, same word, but now uh, past tense. Once again, in verse um, 48, it says there, uh, how do you know me? Nathanael asked, and Jesus said, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then uh, in verse 50, It says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, And then verse 50, once again, you will see greater things than that. And then verse 51, notice again, uh, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. One way that emphasis happens in Scripture is through repeated words. And so this is a significant Uh, word in these verses, to come and see. So there's an interesting relationship in the book of John between seeing and believing. And we all know that seeing is not necessarily believing because there are people who see that still don't believe. And there's some people who believe that have never seen. But God is not afraid to show a bit of himself to people who are truly sincere about following him. So seeing is an invitation not just to examining physical evidence, but really it's a call to spiritual understanding. Okay, In John uh, twelve forty, it talks a little bit about this, but that some people may see with their eyes but not see with their hearts. Okay, So seeing what kind of seeing John is interested in is a spiritual perception that goes beyond eyesight. But many times it starts there. And so when... Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see, he's inviting him into some kind of experience with the Messiah, a relationship with the Messiah that would lead to further beliefs. Sometimes um, Jesus rebukes people for demanding to see, and other times he invites people to come and see. And so I was thinking about this today. How's that, how, does that, how does that work together? And I noticed that there's kind of three different ways that evidence is presented in Scripture, and uh, especially in the book of John and relating to Jesus. And one of them is through testimony, okay, the testimony of others, that there, is, uh, there are things that were given based on some kind of authority. Okay, so what's the first thing that Philip says to Nathaniel? We think we found the one who Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about. Okay, so he's basing uh, who Jesus is on their testimony. Okay, and they have a lot of authority because they're Moses and the prophets. Okay, there are other people with lesser authority, but they still are saying the same truth. Like we found now, Philip's putting him that place that he's bearing testimony. The fact that 
Okay, I believe that I found him. Okay, so are you going to, I'm your friend. Will you trust me enough at least to come see? So there's that kind of evidence. And anytime you witness, that's what you're doing is you're saying to people, hey, I have a testimony about Jesus. Will you come and see? Okay, some people based on that simple testimony will put their faith in Jesus. Okay, and then that opens it up to God doing much, much more. There's a second thing that kind of happens here in terms of evidence, and that's with um, signs or wonders that everybody sees. There are things that Jesus did that even the uh, religious leaders who refused to believe in him, they saw them. Are you with me on that? They saw those things. And so there's things that are evidence that are out there. It's not necessarily uh, a testimony. It has to turn into a testimony eventually because... How do you carry on things from the past unless you talk about them and tell about them? But things that Jesus did that other people saw, people saw, even the skeptics saw Jesus cast demons out of people and heal people and raise people from the dead. And so th- these are those things that Jesus does that, that everybody could witness. And then it, it comes to a moment of having seen this, am I going to believe or refuse to believe still? Because some people, even in the the plain sight of evidence, will refuse to believe. Uh, there's a thought out there that if we just saw more miracles, then everybody would believe. That's not true. Because, because we see in the Old Testament, the people of God see great miracles, and they still refuse to believe. They saw the pillar of fire in the, the cloud would lead them along, and they still refuse to believe. They built the calf. It's true. And I was thinking of another uh, great example of that. How about when Elijah calls for God to answer on Mount Carmel, and they all see it, but does the nation turn? They don't turn. They don't turn back to God. And so, and Jezebel and Ahab, Ahab was there, and he saw it with his own eyes, and yet he refused to put his faith in Yahweh and turn away from his idols. And so seeing doesn't necessarily guarantee people are going to turn in because there's a moral problem. We could see all that there is to know about God. I don't think that's possible, but if it were, and still refuse to believe in him because there's something in our heart that wants to rival him and be our own gods. Okay, Unless we deal with that, uh, you can't give enough evidence until somebody's willing to yield. But there's that evidence out there. And I think there's sufficient evidence uh, in the world today for people to turn to Christ. I think if people follow genuinely with an open heart, the historical evidence, I think people come become believers in Christ. But so often the heart will see what it wants to see. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like there's historically we have more uh, documentation of Jesus' existence, of his death, burial, and resurrection than we do of any other historical event. We're more. How can we not believe? Because we don't want to believe. Then I, I would suggest to you, so we have the testimony of great things that people have witnessed that they talk about. And then we have the testimony of things that Jesus has done uh, on the grand scale, things that we see. And I would include things like seeing the ordered world that we live in. But there's a, a third area of evidence, and that's growing relational evidence. Okay, So when... Uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, 
we've we think the law and Moses we think the law of Moses and the prophets testify that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe it. Okay, that's my testimony. Um, he invites him to come do something. He invites him to come to experience him relationally. This goes back to what happens in verse thirty nine of chapter one, when. Uh, John and Andrew follow after Jesus, and they ask where his house is. And he says, come and see. He's inviting them into a relationship. Okay? There's something that happens with a continued relationship with God where our eyes are opened up more and more to who he is. Okay? You first, in order to do that, you have to accept some area of evidence and say, yes, I believe that this is true, and that you're worthy of trusting. You're worthy of me putting a little bit of faith in, and as you go along, you grow more and more. I think of the two on the road to Emmaus. They're down in the dumps because Jesus has, has died. The hope of their souls has died, and that light has been extinguished. And Jesus walks with them, and he breaks bread with them. He sits down. He explains the Old Testament with them. And he sits down, and he breaks bread, and their eyes are open. I think there's something that happens relationally in terms of faith. So there's, there's growing relational evidence the invitation to see more as you walk with him. So I have to confess here, there's a little bit of a mystery um, related to the knowledge uh, of God. And the only explanation I can give why some get more evidence than others is because of what they've done with the evidence they have already, what's been given so why does Jesus seem frustrated in John? This is going a little bit outside the scope of our passage. When some people ask to see. Okay? There's places like chapter 4, verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Okay? Jesus is frustrated by that. Why is it that you won't believe unless you see? And there's another place, uh, chapter 6, verse 30. What sign then, they're asking now Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? So they're asking for Jesus for a sign. And if I'm not mistaken, this is right after he's multi multiplied the loaves and the fish. So right after he's fed the 5,000, they're asking for a sign to be able to see that he's really the Messiah. Do you see the problem there? So we have we have on one hand Jesus frustrated with people who want to see more and more and more. But then we see Jesus give extra evidence to Nathaniel and Thomas. And I think the reason is he sees their sincerity. When Nathaniel meets Jesus, the Lord praises him for his sincerity, which we haven't gotten to in this passage except for we've read it. He praises him for his sincerity. And just because uh, he shows himself to the sincere... That doesn't mean that God will give us all the evidence we want, but, but he knows how to encourage sincere hearts, and he also gives more evidence to Thomas. Why does he say to the people, you always want to see, and he's frustrated with the general population, but to Thomas, he says, I'll not see, and I'll not believe unless I see, he shows him the grace to let him see. And I think the only explanation for that is that there's a, a sincere heart in Thomas that really wants to believe. And so God gives him what he, what his heart is after in that. But he won't continue to give signs, and he won't continue to give evidence to people who refuse to believe, no matter how much it accumulates. 
So the statement here of doubt from Nathaniel was not really even addressed to Jesus. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? But what can be said about Nathaniel is that he accepted the invitation to keep looking to Jesus. And it opened up for him an opportunity to meet Jesus and to be convinced. And John's whole gospel is this invitation, come and see. And this is John 20, verse 31. These things are written, this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so this is the invitation. Come and see. Okay. You may not say, I've got all the evidence I want, but is there evidence that points to Jesus? The answer is yes, there is. And, and Nathaniel is invited to come and see. Who is it that we're meeting when we meet Jesus? Look at verse 47 with me, and we'll kind of unpack this. It says there, um, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Um, that could be translated, Here's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile, in whom there's no deceit. I'd like you to notice true here means, uh, means real, that which corresponds with reality. And this is kind of a fascinating thing, and it's not for all of tonight, but... Uh, when we talk about truth, what do we mean? Because some people think truth is perceptional, meaning that truth is in the eye of the beholder. If you believe it, it's true. If you don't believe it, it's not true. Well, we have a lot of evidence that, to the contrary of that, don't we? People who believe that if they stepped off this building, they would fly. And reality met them in a harsh way. Okay, so believing... Uh, is not that. What truth is, is truth is that which corresponds with reality. So we have a correspondence agreement with truth. Truth is what really is. Okay. So when he says you're a true Israelite, he's saying you're a real Israelite. You're a real Israelite. And Israelite here means a son of Israel. Are you with that? Okay, he's a son of Israel. You're a true son of Israel. Let's just carry the, the picture forward. You're a true son of Israel in whom there is no deceit. Okay, this word for deceit here means to, to I know you're not supposed to use the definition in the, uh, of, you're not supposed to use the word you're defining in the definition, but we're defining the Greek word. The Greek word is dolos, D-O-L-O-S, and it means to deceive by using trickery or falsehood. Okay, so there's a word play that's happening here that if you... Um, understand it, it unpacks this passage for us in a big way. Okay. Anybody you can think of in the Bible, besides the devil, that's known for their trickery and deceit? Jacob. Jacob. In fact, his name means something like tricker or supplanter, one who grasps at the hill. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the story of Jacob. Jesus just said to Nathaniel, here's a true Israelite, notice that word, in whom there's no deceit, okay, in whom there's no deceit. Jacob, uh, on the other hand, was a deceiver. He was trying to get out of the womb first. You remember that? But they caught him red-handed. They put a, right? They caught him red-handed doing that, and uh, so Esau was the firstborn, 
the blessing um, was humanly planned to go to Esau, but divinely planned to go to Jacob. And we might assume that if Jacob had not tricked his way into getting the blessing, that God would have done it anyway. And I know we're dealing in the realm of speculation here, and uh, it's not what happened, so what does it matter? The only reason I would say that is if you're faced with a moment where you have to get God's blessing by trickery or just trust him for it, don't do it by trickery. Just trust him for it. Okay, that's the only reason I would say what I said about it may have happened anyway is to encourage us, let's not only do the right thing, but uh, do it the right way. And so, um, anyway, he tricks his way into getting the blessing. God probably would have done anyway, but Jacob took advantage of his brother for his birthright. What's the birthright? Do you know what that, do you remember what that is? You get twice the inheritance. And how many are there? There's just two of them, right? So what you do is split the inheritance three ways, and then Esau would get the double portion, and then Jacob would get the leftovers. And so what Jacob did was wait till Esau was famished, and he said, I've got a nice bowl of soup here. I'll trade your birthright for it. And there's not it's not clear exactly what happened here, but uh, the possibility is maybe Jacob kept his portion too. We don't know. But what this means is that now he has the older son's inheritance because Esau went for it because he, the Bible describes him as a sensuous man. All he cared about is his appetites. So he sold his birthright for his appetites. That tells you something about his character. Okay, so later on when um, Jacob is supposed to get the, give the blessing to one of his sons, he's going to give it to Esau. What is the blessing? So this is different from the birthright. What does the blessing entail? here, just in a simple explanation. Favor from God, okay? There's something that goes along with that. It's a, it's a heritage. It's a lineage, right? Whoever, whoever Isaac blesses, it's going to be through that son that the Messiah will come because they already know that there's a promised descendant. So if Esau gets it, the Messiah comes through Esau's line, but if Jacob gets it, it comes through Jacob's line. So Jacob tricks his way into getting the blessing. He puts on some fur. His mom helps him in the trickery. Puts on some fur on his arms because his brother's hairy. He probably disguises his voice a little bit. And he goes in there to his father. His father's older. He's failing in his eyesight. And he says, uh, Father, I've come with your stew. And... Um, I want, I want you to bless me. And he says, well, you feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. Are you Jacob or Esau? And what does Jacob say? I'm Esau. I'm Esau, right? So he gets the blessing from his father, the blessing that the Messianic lineage would go through Jacob. And then he hits the road because he knows that Esau's going to kill him. Esau's made a vow, I'm going to kill you. And he takes him seriously. So he goes and lives with his uncle Laban. And while he's there, he falls in love with uh, Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he promises to work seven years. And then kind of a player got played kind of thing happens. Do you remember? That uh, on the night of the wedding, 
Laban pulls the old switch, right? And he puts Leah in there instead. Jacob had just tricked his dad earlier into believing he was the other brother. Now the father-in-law is tricking Jacob into believing this is the other sister. Do you see the poetic irony here? Anyway, that's a side note. 21 years he works for his father-in-law. He comes away having married both Leah and Rachel, and he begins to have a family, and he decides it's time to head back to the promised land and to see his father. And this whole Esau thing is looming over him because after all this time, uh, Esau's anger might not have subsided. And so he hears rumors that Esau is coming. He splits his family up because he thinks somebody might get killed here. And he might slaughter all of us. And so I'm going to send part of the family this way and part of the family that way. And then he crosses the, the, the Jabbok, right? And while he's there, he, he meets with an angel. or a, The Bible talks about it being God himself. He wrestles with him. And in the night, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. What's he looking for? He's looking for a blessing that wasn't gained by fraud. Okay, it's one thing for him to be blessed by his father under false pretense. It's another thing to be blessed by God. And so he says, I will not let you go till you bless me. And God asks him a question. What was the question? What's your name? What did his father ask him? What's your name? Who are you? And at one time, he lied in order to get the blessing. This time, in order to get the blessing, he's going to be honest. Because that's the only way you can get it, is to be honest, right? You can't deceive God. You can't trick God. You can't play games with him. He sees right through it. So he says, my name is Jacob. And God says to him, your name, I'm giving you a new name, Israel. Israel wrestles with God. So Israel now uh, is the name of Jacob and his sons and the nation that comes forth from Jacob. Now we fast forward to this story later on, and we keep all that in mind as we see Nathaniel. Jesus says, Nathaniel, a true, a real Israelite in whom there's no deceit. F.F. Bruce translates it this way. He says, this is all Israel and no Jacob. You are all Israel and no Jacob. And that's the kind of person that God can bless, is somebody who is authentic and real with him. Jesus says to him in verse 48, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. See, because when he said, a true Israelite in whom there's no guile, all of a sudden Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? How do you know me enough to make that character judgment about me? How do you know me enough? A true Israelite in whom there's no deceit, how do you know me? Now, I think that what Nathaniel's already done points to the fact that here's somebody who says it like it is, okay? And they have a thing in England that, you know, if you're from Yorkshire, that you're supposed to be brutally honest and uh with no ill intention whatsoever, it's just the way you are. That you just say things the way that you are. And so maybe uh, Nathaniel's kind of like a, a northerner, like a Yorkshireman. He's ready to say it as he is, as it is. 
Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's not pulling any punches. He's not being mean. He's just asking an honest question. Are you with me on that? He's asking an honest question. I think this points to the fact that Jesus has his character nailed. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't play games. He says it like it is. A true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And so Nathaniel says in verse 48, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before, before Philip called you. I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. There's a lot of speculation as to what this means. What does the fig tree mean? What's its significance? Um, some people say, well, rabbis taught under the fig tree. That's a really loose connection here. Maybe he studied the Torah under the fig tree, but I think it's probably something more than that. It most likely is some moment in which Nathaniel, or a series of moments in which Nathaniel was alone in prayer or thought, and maybe next to his house or somewhere near his home was a fig tree where he would go to pray and spend time with God. Okay? And for Jesus to have never been there and to know that it was him, and it tells us that he knows something that he probably wouldn't otherwise know. It probably was that moment which had deep spiritual significance for Nathaniel in a place where no one else was around. And it may have been the place where he spent a lot of time alone in prayer. We can't be sure, but we do know that Nathaniel knew that what Jesus was talking about was true, and he understood this to be supernatural knowledge. We know that because of the thing that he says next. Nathaniel says in verse 49, he declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. So he knows. Jesus knows something that not anybody else would know. And because of that, there is something significant. So what I'm suggesting today is that uh, he's taking the testimony of, the, of Moses and the prophets, of his friend Philip, and he's adding to it this piece of information here that Jesus knows something that others don't know. And this case is beginning to develop. And he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. These are messianic titles from Psalm 2. These statements Jesus equates with belief. Look at what it says in verse 50. You believe. He's saying that about his response. You believe. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus is saying, yes, you're right. You believe. But he's saying it's not going to stop there. You've got more to see. And I would encourage us, too, that if you walked with God for a while, you haven't seen all that there is from God. There's, there's more. There's more to God than what we, we know. And I don't mean that it's different from what we know in the sense of that it's going to be inconsistent with Scripture or uh, necessarily different from what we've encountered of him up to this point, but there's still more and it's still better. Right? You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. This verse 50 and 51, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God 
ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is an interesting thing because we return to Jacob right here. This takes us back to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 10 through 12. Jacob left Beersheba. This right after he tricks the inheritance out of his, or the, the blessing out of his father. And he's on the run from Esau. He leaves Beersheba and he set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down and he slept. And he had a dream in which he saw the stairway, a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he sees some kind of stair, stairway to heaven, not in the rock and roll sense, but in another sense altogether. Uh, which, by the way, is imagery stolen from the Scripture. And here's the fabulous thing about the stairway to heaven is it's not us climbing up, it's God coming down. Jacob saw this. Now Jesus is saying, you believe, you will see this happening, and the descent will be upon the Son of Man. And this is telling us the intersection between heaven and earth is found in Jesus. People are looking for lots of different ways to get into the supernatural. Through Eastern religion, that's, uh, that's common nowadays to say, well, we've tried this Christianity thing, now we're going to try Eastern religion or the New Age or it's weird beliefs like Scientology and some people use, uh, if they smoke pot and read the Bible at the same time, <laughs> get revelations from that, you know, Rastafarianism. And all of that is really a substitute for the real spirituality that can only come through Jesus. There's no other door to the divine except through Jesus. And let me proclaim that to us boldly today. There's no other way we get to have encounter with God that's legitimate except through Jesus. He's the gateway between heaven and earth. If you want to have a relationship with the Father, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes except through Jesus. Anyone who tries to get in another way is a thief. It's only through Christ. And so he's saying uh, that he is that intersection between heaven and earth. He's the intersection for our prayers. If you want to pray, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean that we use Jesus' name as a formula. It means that we pray based on the work of what Jesus has accomplished. We come boldly before the throne of grace because we've obtained favor through the blood of Christ. Okay, He's made it accessible to us to talk to the Father because of him. If you want relationship with God, it's only through Jesus. Now, we have relationship with the Holy Spirit. We have relationship with the Father. We have relationship with Jesus. But it's all accomplished because Jesus has washed our sins away. Isn't that good news? I mean, we're not, we're not groping out in the ether wondering where this spirituality comes from. It comes through Jesus. That's it. And I wish... Uh, our culture would get it. I wish people that we love would get that. I wish sometimes the church would get that. We get lost in all kinds of fanciful things, and we forget that Jesus is the way. The angels ascending and descending. And notice in verse 51, 
you will see them ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is talking about heaven opening, the access to heaven. The way heaven comes down only can happen through the Son of Man. It requires for us sincerity. I'd like you to notice something tonight. You won't see this so much in our English translations. and I only know this because of having read a little bit on this, but because I don't... I can't read Greek fluently, but there's something which happens subtly here in the the Greek. You might get this from the KJV because the KJV uses the second uh, person pronoun in two ways. If it's if it's talking about a, a single person, it uses you. But if it's talking about more than one person, it uses ye, y e. Okay, so we don't make that distinction anymore. Somehow, the second person plural has been joined with first or second person singular in you. So if I'm saying you, I might be talking just to Georgia, or I might be talking to everyone. If you're from the South, you have y'all, right? You know, you know how to communicate to lots of people. But we don't so much see that in modern English, but here it's there. There's this shift from second person singular to second person plural in verses 50 through 51. So Jesus is talking to Nathaniel, and he said, you believe, second person singular, you, Nathaniel, believe, because I've told you, second person singular, Nathaniel, I saw you, Nathaniel, under the fig tree, you, Nathaniel, will see greater things than that, he said, and then he added, very truly, I tell you, second person plural, all of you, I tell all of you, all of you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the interesting thing, and this happens a few times in John, where he goes from speaking to the individual, and if we're not paying close attention, we may miss that suddenly the shift is from, I'm only talking to you, now I'm saying something that is applicable to everyone. And the thing that's applicable to everyone is this, the angels ascending and descending, the gate to heaven is through Jesus. That's for everybody. Hey, buddy, I saw you under the fig tree. That's for Nathaniel. The heavens being opened through Jesus, that's for everyone. Are you with me? I don't know if that's exciting on a warm Wednesday night, but it should be. And if you're not enough excited now, go home and drink a Coke and enjoy the caffeine and get happy about this. It's exciting. There's, there, there's something further. This is uh, from a guy named Dean Depp. He's a Bible scholar. He says, the angels ascend and descend on Jesus at his resurrection. He says, when one heavenly messenger is positioned at the head and the other at the feet where Jesus had lain in John 20, verse 12. Not all the Gospels tell it just like this. And there's not contradiction this is another eyewitness. Remember, John went to the tomb. He looks in. He sees an angel sitting in a place where it would be the head and a place sitting where it would be the feet. Okay, Think about this for a moment. Here's what, here's what Dean Depp says. This is a symbolic portrait of two angels attending God. And Jesus, God and Jesus represents the Ark of the Covenant where the divine presence rested among God's people to offer atonement and mercy to all. 
Jesus himself is God incarnate among us. The plural pronoun in verse 51 points to a reality in which every Christian can partake. All of us now can experience a ladder to heaven and enjoy real temple fellowship with the Son of God because of Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he's saying. I think you can see this in other passages. Jesus is the present Ark of the Covenant. It's in Jesus. He's the Ark of the Testimony. If somebody goes and finds that old thing, it will detract from what Jesus is. Jesus replaces that. He is the intersection between heaven and earth. We don't need a box anymore. We've got Jesus, and that's superior. And if you want to argue that, I would challenge you, read the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the old covenant. That echoes through Hebrews again and again and again. And yet some Christians want to go back to all of that for some reason and get super connected to that, and they forget the reality is better it's far better. We have that all in Jesus. Well, I'm winding this down here tonight. We're glad for that. But insincerity doesn't get us anywhere with God. The insatiable demand for evidence by some is never met because we uh, just want more and more evidence. It's not really the problem. It's usually the unwillingness to commit following Christ, that's the real problem. And you can't give enough evidence to convince somebody. Some people are convinced intellectually, but they'll not follow Christ because they don't want to give up sin. Do you know people like that? Have we ever been like that? We're convinced of it, but we won't budge in this one area because we don't want to give it up. And so it's not always a lack of evidence that's the problem. I see a different picture for those who walk with Christ in relationship. A lot of times, little faith leads to bigger faith with passing time. If at first we trusted seeing some small reason for believing, then in time we're going to see God do more. And we'll see more of his character. And my reasons for trusting at first will be reinforced with a myriad of additional reasons. This is why the invitation to come and see is so vital. It's the entry point for sincere, uh, for the sincere, which opens up a universe full of God. I think of uh, Alice in Wonderland. You remember uh, the story by Lewis Carroll that she's got to shrink down to go through the door. Do you remember that? She's got to shrink down to go through the door. And when she goes through the door, there's a big world there. And I think that's such an excellent picture of really surrendering to Christ is that we have to shrink down. We have to, be, we have to be small. You remember, come to me as little children. We have to come humbly to him. And when we do, we find that the door opens up and there's a great big world in which God is king. And we'll see more and more his glory in it. So that's why that invitation is so important. But it's closed to the insincere, to the unbelieving, to those who would manipulate God to their own ends. And this is why uh, confession is so key. I think that Nathaniel is a perfect example of this. He doesn't understand there, everything there is to know about Jesus, but he's honest with it. He's honest with his question. And I think we ought to be honest with our questions because God knows what our heart's at anyway. Right? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. And So when I talk about confession, I don't mean the wild use of words where we recreate reality to our liking. I mean confession as agreement with God. Confession is two words. It's, it's, uh, 
it means same word in Greek. Same word. And so we come into agreement with God to agree on our own sinfulness. God says we're sinful. We need to quit justifying our sin and agree with him. Yes, you're right in your judgments about me. Remember David said that in Psalm 51. Your judgments concerning me are right. Man, that's big because if we're arguing against God, we can't really we can't really come to true repentance. We need to be honest with our own neediness. We never stop being needy in terms of our need for God. We need to be honest with our frailty, honest with him, with our questions even. And we need to agree that he that we need more, uh, we need him more than anything else in all the world. So Nathaniel's picture tells us God responds, Christ responds to sincerity. And when we come to him sincerely with all of our heart, that he's not afraid of the questions. In fact, I, I put Christianity up against any other philosophy of living. And you would expect me to say that because I'm a pastor. But it's true. Look at where our world's going. We're vacuous. We're empty. We have no moral guidance. There's violence in our streets. And this is what God said would happen if we turn from him. Are you with me? Amen. Let's come to him with all of our hearts. Thanks for your attention tonight. Why don't we stand together? Father, thank you for this story. You know us. The fact that you knew where Nathaniel was at any moment, his moment perhaps of most solitude and his private devotion with you. You knew where his real you knew where his heart was and you know what he was really like. And I pray, Lord, you would be able to say of us that there's a there goes another true son of Israel in whom there's no deceit, daughter of Israel in whom there's no guile. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be sincere with you and not deceptive and, and be honest with you about our needs and be honest with you about what we really want. And I pray that you'd give us that sincerity of heart that goes that follows heart after you and desires more of you. And Lord, uh, grow our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.